<clears throat> well, as, as we continue to, to get um, updates on Pastor Victor and as we continue to await his uh, restoration and return, uh, Pastor Brian and I have been discussing and talking about how best to, to, to move forward with Sunday mornings. And uh, we decided that at least for, for, the, for the here and now, for the, for, for the time being, we're going to try and focus on, on smaller books, shorter books, that have fewer chapters, uh, so that, that way we, we can be flexible. Um, you know, Pastor Victor is still, is still um, giving us direction, even from, from the hospital, which I think is, which is awesome, and we, we, we praise God for that, and we praise God for his heart, as Pastor Brian was sharing earlier, that his heart is still the heart of a shepherd, and he cares for us, and um, so as the Lord leads him... We pray uh, our church will continue to be led. Um, so in the time being, just again, so that we can, be, um, we can adjust to however PV wants, uh, we landed on the book of Colossians. So we're going to be in Colossians this morning. It's a shorter book. Um, and God is so good. Uh, the, the way God arranges things, you know, the way God puts things in order. Because even before uh, Pastor Victor said that he, he would like for us to focus on home Bible studies for Wednesday nights, on the imminent return of Jesus, even before we knew that was on his heart, we had landed on the book of Colossians. And the, the primary theme of Colossians that we wanted to look at was the supremacy and the identity and the superiority of Jesus in all things. And so as God has arranged it, it seems that on Wednesday nights, while we are being encouraged to look towards his imminent return... Lord willing, on Sunday mornings, we're going to be challenged to meditate our thoughts on who he is, the fullness of his identity, uh, and how he and he alone is sufficient. Not just for our salvation. That's, in some ways, that's the easy part. Uh, we, we all know and affirm and believe and, and, and say that, yes, all we need is Jesus for salvation. But then after that, the continuing of our sanctification, the continuing of what completes our righteousness and what completes our, our salvation, that's where a lot of the struggle is. That's where we tend to get led astray. That's where we are tempted to, to add things to Jesus. Okay? And so in our, in our journey through Colossians, uh, I hope that we will be reminded and reestablish that Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient, because it seems like one of the ongoing struggles, one of the ongoing temptations of God's people historically, all the way back in the Old Testament, is to, is, is to, is to struggle with the idea that, that God's covenant is enough. Okay, so, so for example, if we go back to the Old Testament, um, as we read through the history of Israel, as we read through what the prophets had to say about their worship, we see over and over again that the Israelites would not, they would not come out and say, well, we, we are rejecting Yahweh. We, we no longer worship him. That's not what they were accused of doing. What they were accused of doing, what they actually did, was they would say, well, we're going to continue worshiping Yahweh and these other gods as well. And so it's not turning your back against God in, at least not in their minds. And their minds are just saying, well, why can't we also worship Asherah? Why can't we also worship Baal and all these other pagan gods? What would it hurt? I mean, at least that way we have all the bases covered. If Yahweh's mad at us, then we'll go to this other god, you know, and surely that's okay. And so their, their, their crime wasn't 
rejecting God completely, they would still do temple worship. They would still do all the, at least in their minds, they would do all the Levitical law. Um, It was in joining worldly ideas to their worship. In the New Testament, the struggle looked different, but the basis of it is still the same. The New Testament believers, over and over again, we read in Paul's letters that he has to write these letters to, to challenge them and encourage them and say, why would you go back to Judaism when Jesus has saved you from that? Jesus is all you need, but if, if you've studied Paul's journeys, you know that where, wherever he would go, he would preach in the synagogues and he would uh, establish that Jesus was the Messiah, that he did all these things, and people would would listen and respond and receive the gospel. And when Paul would move on, this group of Jews called the Judaizers would come behind him and say to the people, we know Paul said, you know, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's true, but you also need this. You also need circumcision still, or you also need the dietary laws still, or you also need fill in the blank, whatever aspect of Judaism, they would say, yes, Jesus is good, but also this. And then in the centuries after the Bible was, 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 was completed, in the centuries after the New Testament, the church struggled uh, for, for years against these um, human philosophies, things like Gnosticism and, uh, and asceticism and legalism and all these isms, right, uh, that, would, that would try to creep in and say, yes, Jesus, but also um, Yes, Jesus, and you also have to eat this way or deny yourself these things or follow these rules and these laws. Um, and so throughout the history of God's people, uh, it seems to be, for some reason, Jesus continues to not be enough on his own for the righteousness of his people to be complete. So that's the question, that's one of the questions that Colossians is going to invite us to ask about ourselves, and that I want to kind of preface our study with, is what makes our righteousness complete? What is it that secures, in our minds, what secures our salvation? What is it about you that you would say, if nothing else, this is how others know, this is how I know? That, that I am a child of God, that I'm going to be with him in eternity? Okay, is it, what, what, is it based on what you believe? Okay, is that what secures your salvation? Is that what secures your righteousness, what you believe? Because the Bible says, and we say this over and over again from up here, the Bible says even the demons believe, and their belief profits them nothing, right? Is it the way you live? Is that what secures your salvation? And, and is that what declares you righteous? Because Jesus said... Um, if that's your standard, if, if, if the way you live is going to be your standard, then your righteousness, your outward righteousness must exceed the outward righteousness of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were far from perfect. Inwardly, we know Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. There's nothing but death and decay on the inside. But on the outside, their righteousness was second to none. And so if the way we live is how we establish our righteousness, then we've got a long way to go. Is it how we worship? Is it the ways we worship, when we worship, what kind of music we do, what kind of uh, teaching we do, dare I say, topical teachings on occasion? You know, um, is, is the way we worship, is that what secures our righteousness? Because Jesus told the woman at the well, when she came to him with this whole argument of, you know, this is how we worship, what the Jews say we're supposed to worship this way, what did Jesus tell her? A time is coming and now has come when the true followers of God will worship what? 
in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter the outward show. It doesn't matter all the different things and, 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 and programs and, and tapestries that we use um, is worship in spirit and in truth. So all of these things that we would say, this is what defines our righteousness. This is what secures our salvation. If we're not careful, a lot of these things become gateways into heretical thoughts and self-deception. Um, biblically, we know the only standard, in God's eyes anyway, the only standard of righteousness for us, the only, the only thing that secures our salvation is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that covers the stain of our sins. And I know I don't have to remind you guys of that, right? I'm going to do it anyway, though, okay? Let's look through uh, just a few verses real quickly that are not in Colossians, just to, again, reestablish the priority of righteousness only in Christ. So have that maybe as like a, a theme in the background of, of, of your mind. Righteousness only through Christ, um, and that will help lead us through our study. So the first one I want to read is from Romans, Romans chapter 10. Starting in verse 5, it says, Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law. If you're going to think that the outward things are what make you righteous, righteousness by the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. That means you have to do all of them. If your righteousness is going to be by the outward showing of, of, of anything. And look, we often think, well, yeah, of course we don't follow the Levitical law, the Old Testament law, but that applies to anything outward about us, any, any works of our flesh, anything that comes from our own, our, our own effort or our own willpower, that's the law. Okay, if that is how we're going to measure righteousness, then, you know, Paul says you've got to do all of it. But in verse 6, the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Don't try to reach on your own up to heaven in your own power to, to reach Jesus, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so Paul is saying righteousness by the law, if, you're, if it's outward, you've got to do all of it. But righteousness that comes from heaven is fully trusting in Jesus. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 21, it says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Talking about Jesus, you guys know this verse. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. There is no other righteousness outside of Jesus. Anytime anyone comes to you and says, oh, you're not doing this too? Oh, so, so you don't follow this lifestyle or this way of doing things? And they kind of give you that side eye, like, oh, I guess you're not that good of a Christian then, are you? Well, scripturally... Anything, anything outside of Jesus profits nothing for our righteousness and salvation. The last one, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, 
For if justification or righteousness, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If there's any other means to the throne of God, if there's anything else that puts a stamp of approval on our faith and says, this is what makes you a Christian, if there's anything other than Jesus that we look to for that, then Paul says Christ died for nothing, okay? So again, we cannot overemphasize, and, 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 and this, is, this is a recurring theme in Paul's ministry, having to establish and reestablish the, the, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus for our, not just our salvation, but for our ongoing sanctification and righteousness. And Jesus, it's all about him. And anything else you add to it, anything else that you think I have to, I have to supplement with this, Paul says, it, it's, it's, it has no value. In fact, it tears down the gospel. And so that's what's going to bring us into our study in Colossians, because Paul writes the book of Colossians um, primarily to, to encourage a, 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 a young, newly formed body of believers who have started well. Um, Paul probably writes this letter from prison. Some of the language he uses gives us clues that he's, he's currently suffering for the cause of the gospel in prison. So he either wrote or dictated this to a scribe from prison. And, and at some point, he had caught word of this young church that had started really well. Um, he heard testimony of their love for one another, and we're going to spend a lot of time today uh, looking at that. Um, he heard testimony of how, how they received the gospel with, with, with excitement and passion, but that already, already they were being tempted to, to add something to it, to add other ideas, to add human philosophy, or to add um, legalism, or to add something to their faith. And so Paul writes the book of Colossians, um, to, first of all, acknowledge the believer's good start, to say, I've heard you're doing this, that's great, keep doing that, to establish who Jesus is. And there's this beautiful section at the end of chapter 1 that we won't be able to get to today, uh, where Paul lays out in grand detail, like the identity and, and the, the supremacy of Christ, and then from there, he's going to go and say, now, because these things are true, because Jesus is who he says he is, then our lifestyle follows this way. Not as, not as what qualifies us for salvation, but just as what, what naturally follows Jesus being who Jesus is. So that's kind of the, the flow of the entire book. Uh, we're going to be in chapter one today. Um, and so let's get started. First one, actually, you know what, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. Um, I do want to give us a little bit of, of a preview of chapter two, uh, because some of, the things that, that, um, some of the things that we're going to read about are going to make more sense if we know what specific issues the Colossians are being tempted by. Um, so I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I do want to give us an idea of why Paul writes with such urgency. So in chapter two, uh, in verse eight, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. So there's clue number one. Paul says, look, be careful that no one takes you captive. He's, so, um, he's saying these, these other ideas, he calls them... Um, uh, philosophies, empty deceit, human traditions, 
Uh, and these human traditions are according to the elemental spirit of the universe. You know, so he's kind of saying there's even some mysticism probably trying to make its way into the theology of the Colossians. He's saying all of these things will take you captive. Um, they will lead you back into bondage. There's no freedom in them. There's no, there's no truth in them. And they will hinder the forward march of the gospel in your life. Now, they won't hinder the gospel um, uh, worldwide, God's, God's purpose is absolute. God's purpose is inevitable. The gospel itself is not going to be hindered, but the gospel in your life, the power of the gospel in your life can absolutely be hindered when we dilute it with, with worldly ideas. And he says, these things will take you captive. They will make you a prisoner. They will put you into bondage. And then again, uh, further down in verse 16, he says, therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink. And so there was this, this, this movement of, of asceticism that said, you know, um, if you really want to be a good Christian, if you really want to be spiritual, then you'll, de- you'll, you'll learn to, 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 de- to deny yourself certain things, deny yourself certain foods, deny yourself certain enjoyments or pleasures. And, and certainly there is a part of that that's true. And, and this, is, this is the... The danger of all of these things is there's always an element of truth that's taken to, to an ungodly extreme, okay? But the ascetics would, would, would hide themselves away. They would say, no, I'm going to deny myself everything. Um, everything about the body is inherently evil and sinful. And Paul would have to write letters to say, if the body is, is evil and sinful, then why does Jesus have a resurrected physical body? You know, so like the physical is not in itself inherently sinful. Okay, it's what we do with it. So all these things um, are, are coming together to, to try and deceive and tear away the faith of, of the church. It's worth noting the different ways that the church throughout history has responded to the enemy's attacks. Um, if you notice, when it's a full frontal attack, when, when the enemy or the world comes at us like uh, with with, uh, with persecution or with imprisonment or with martyrdom, when, when we are forced to physically suffer for our faith, uh, the church historically has risen to the occasion. And the words of Jesus when he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, those come into vivid view. When it's a more subtle approach, when the enemy comes at us through more subtle means, through compromise, through carnality, through... Uh, human philosophy, when those things share a seat at the table of fellowship with a believer, then that's when the gospel becomes inevitably watered down. That's when the church, that's when we, we lose our relevance, we lose our power, and we sink into the depths of obscurity because that's how the enemy defeats. It's all throughout Scripture. Um, God's people, when they were being attacked directly, um, God, God protected them and made them stronger. When, they were being, when, when we were attacked indirectly, uh, that's when the church loses its power. Okay, so just kind of a side note there. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and start now in chapter 1. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And so Paul starts by affirming once again that his apostleship is not by human will or design, but only by the will of God. He starts a lot of his letters this way, where he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Uh, there, ha- there have been and there continue to be plenty of people who will presume or claim to speak for God. 
And maybe you've had this in your life. Maybe you've ever had someone come up to you and say, God's given me a word for you. And anytime someone comes to me and says that, like red flags go up right away. You know, you just got to be careful with that kind of thing. Um, I've had plenty of well-meaning people, I think well-meaning people, come to me and say, God wants me to tell you this. You know, I've, I've got a word from the Lord. Okay, let's hear it, you know. Um, and, uh, and, you know, most of the time it's sad. I'm like, well, okay, you know, thanks for that. That's great. And I don't want to be rude or anything, but until God confirms that himself for me, you know, uh, I'm just going to take that with a grain of salt. Sometimes someone will say, here's what God wants me to tell you. And it actually, and, and, and you just know, like there is power behind it. God will confirm the people that he, that he is choosing to speak through. Um, in fact, scripture tells us that we should be careful uh, of, of, of taking upon ourselves that authority, right? Um, that, that we should be careful of, of claiming to speak for God ourselves. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We who teach, we who claim to speak for God, will be judged more strictly than other believers. And so I wonder if when some of these people come on stage or come to us and say, I have a word from the Lord, if they realize the, the accountability they invite upon themselves. So when Paul says this, when Paul says, I'm speaking for God, I'm an apostle by the will of God, we know Paul's heart from other parts of Scripture. We know that Paul understands that he is the least qualified to speak for God. Over and over again in his letters, he says, you know, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the last person that should be doing this. And so when he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God, I don't think he is throwing his weight around. I don't think he's trying to, like, you know, force his ideas. I think in humility, he recognizes that it is only by the will and grace of God that his words have any value at all. And so he introduces himself as an apostle by the will of God to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there again. It would be a worthwhile study to go through the New Testament letters and just read and meditate on the prayers of Paul and how he prays for the churches that he's writing to. These beautiful prayers, and there have been times where, where I've taken those and, and I've thought, this cannot be improved upon. Um, and I've prayed those over others, and there is power in that. Um, and, uh, and, and we're going to get into the actual prayer later, but um, I love that Paul's ministry, uh, at least one of the things that defined it anyway, Paul's ministry is defined by prayer. He's a man of prayer. Um, and doubtless, you know, Paul had plenty of time to pray. You know, he spent a lot of time in prison. Um, I guess after teaching guards how to sing hymns, there's not much else to do in prison. And so, you know, you know Paul has far less distractions than we do, um, but he fills his ministry with prayer. He's always writing to people and saying, I have not ceased praying for you. And I often wonder what God would do in our lives and in our church if we could, in sincerity and integrity, claim the same thing, we, we haven't ceased praying for one another. Um, and it's just a, it's a beautiful dynamic and relationship that he has uh, with the churches in the New Testament. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So 
of all the things that Paul could have, that Paul probably did hear about this church, the thing that sticks out to him the most, the testimony of the Colossians' faith that reaches Paul, that touches his heart, um, was it that they had the best programs? Was it that they had the largest meeting space or the most dynamic preaching? No, the, the first thing he mentions, he says, I have heard, um, we, have, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And so it is this love, this testimony of love, that that is the, character, the characteristic that most stands out to Paul uh, about the Colossians. And again, I, we have to pause and, and, and ask ourselves and think to ourselves, oh, if, if that could be said about us, if the testimony of the faith of Calvary Restored Church was that we have love for all the saints. If the first thing, if, if before everything else, and just, like, just think about the things that as a church we want to be known for. Think about the things that most churches want to be known for. We want to be known for, for having you know, the, 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 the cutting edge technology or, or, or the best programs or the biggest building or whatever else, okay? Um, sometimes even... Uh, wanting to be known for having the best doctrine, okay? And I think that's probably a, a noble desire. That's, that, that's a good thing. We, we, have a, we want to have good doctrine. But more than anything else, what would it look like to the outside world if we were known for our love? If we were known not just for how we loved each other in this building, but how we loved all the saints, how we loved the fellow believers at the church down the street, how we loved uh, fellow believers who might express their faith a little bit differently than we do, or how we love people at the mega church or the traditional church or the church on TV or the church that doesn't make sense to us, just how we love the saints. And I feel like all too often we reach for a testimony that is good but is not the best. And we forget the words of our Savior. We forget the words of Jesus when he said, this is how they will know that you are my disciples by your love. And that's in uh, John chapter 13. Let me read that directly. John chapter 13 and verse 12. I'm sorry, not 13. Yeah, John 13, verse 34. I apologize. John 13, verse 34. I give you a new commandment that you love one another Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, um, we fill in that that blank with so many other things. We fill in that this is how we know we're Christians with so many other ideas and things that are good. But Jesus says the supremacy, the best thing, the way the world's going to know that you truly follow me is how you love one another. Uh, and so the, the Colossian church, they are far from, from perfect, um, and otherwise Paul wouldn't have written this letter. Uh, but one thing that they did well was that they loved one another. And what was the source of that love? We read in verse 5, he says, um, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, 
So he says, you have this love for the saints. Why? Not because you conjure it in yourself. And, and this is where we can get into another trap. We can think, okay, I just got to love better. I got to love harder. And if we're trying to conjure up that love in, in of our own willpower, we're going to inevitably fail over and over again. Uh, but Paul says, your love, it's clear that your love for the saints comes because of the hope you have laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of in the word of the truth, the gospel, and so it is this this eternal hope um, that empowers the Colossians to love. And again, we cannot we cannot underestimate or or, 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 or overstate the importance of that. We read at least four times in the book of First John um, that loving fellow believers is not an option. 1 John 3.10, it says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. It's hard to mince those words, John says. If you don't love your brother, he doesn't say just the brother that worships with you, just the one that goes to the same kind of church you do. Um, if you don't love your brother, then, then you're not a child of God. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who who does not love his brother abides in death. So not only are you not a child of God, you're also abiding in death. He who does not love, or he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That is 1 John 4.8. And then in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So, um, again, the Colossians, they weren't perfect, but the foundation of love that they had established, Paul is saying, that is what we're going to build on. That is what is most important, is that you, for, for whatever else you are deficient in, for, for, for all the other things that maybe you're struggling with, I have heard about your love, the testimony of your love is what comes first, it was what I've heard first, and that is what is paramount to the building of the gospel in you. So again, um, it, is, it is love that is inspired by the hope of eternity. And so verse 6, um, that, oh, let's look back to verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you have heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as, it is, just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. And so it is an encouragement to us. It should be an encouragement to us, and hopefully it was an encouragement to the Colossians. Paul says this gospel has been bearing fruit among you, and it's also bearing fruit and growing in the whole world. And it's good for us to be reminded that God's word does not return void. Uh, God's word does not return empty-handed. Sometimes we can get so discouraged. Sometimes we can look around us. We can be immersed in culture. We can see the way the world is shifting and changing. And, uh, and we just think, oh, Lord, there's, there's nothing left. There's nothing left for us but to just kind of survive and wait for you to return. And we get really kind of fatalistic in, in, in our approach to the gospel. But over and over again, Scripture says that God's word does not return void. And and we we must be reminded as believers in this nation that God's efforts, that God's uh, uh, purpose and trajectory of the gospel is not limited to what we see around us. 
And that, in fact, all around us, all around the world, the gospel continues to move forward. Um, I've, been, I've been able to, to have more uh, um, experience with, with how things are going around us. I've, I've, I've been subbing at, in the public schools lately, and, uh, and some of that's been fun. It's been kind of neat to be around kids and just see you know, what they're into. And some of that has just been... Um, it's filled me with, with, with sadness when I see the kind of darkness, the kind of things that not just the kids are saying, but even some of the teachers, and the kinds of things that are just passed off as normal and as appropriate. And you think, oh, Lord, surely it can't get worse than this. Oh, Lord, surely, you know, there's, there's no hope here. All we can do is just wait for God to, to come back. And then you hear about and read about the amazing things happening in countries all over the world for the gospel. You hear about revival in the church happening in places like Africa or Asia or South America or the Middle East, where, where the church is growing like crazy, where, 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 where numbers in the church are just exploding. And those are the places where it is most difficult to be a Christian. Those are the places where where a proclamation of faith costs you something. It might cost you your life. And yet you hear these amazing testimonies and stories of how the gospel is, is changing lives, and so we can be filled with hope. And so I love that Paul wrote that. And I don't know, I don't know if the Colossians were struggling with that or, or not, but, but I do love that Paul points out the gospel has been fruitful in your midst, and just the same way as it is fruitful all over the world. And so we have to remember that God's perspective is on the whole world, not just on our nation or our community or our little, little area. Um, and so we can take comfort from that. God is not done yet with this world. He has a plan still, and we're thankful. Okay, verse 9. So from verses 9 to 12, we have the actual prayer that Paul is, is praying uh, for the Colossians. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Here's, here's what I want to do. I want to read through this prayer. Um, I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read it a little slowly. And I just want you to think about the words. I want the words of Paul's prayer to rest on your thoughts. And then we'll go back and, and break it down verse by verse. So. We have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul knew how to pray. Sometimes we read scripture and we read through some of these prayers and we just kind of gloss over them, you know, um, but they're beautiful and they're powerful. And I think if we took it, if we took every line 
and, said, and, and, and prayed that over ourselves and over our loved ones, I think we would see some really neat things happening. And so let's look at what he's actually praying for the people. The first thing he says is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. In verse 9, um, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So how many times have you found yourself in that place in life where you, where you ask, I just wish I knew what God's will was. I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do. I can't think of how many times I have asked that or how many times I have been asked that by by fellow believers who, who are either frustrated or who just feel like, man, I, just, I wish God would tell me what to do. I wish he would just kind of part the clouds up here and say, here's what you're supposed to do. And wouldn't that make it easier for all of us if God would just do that sometimes? And so one of Paul's prayers is, I pray that you would know God's will for your life. How do we know God's will for our lives? He says, um, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, when we read that, When we read spiritual wisdom and understanding, sometimes we think Paul's talking about a category of wisdom. So he's saying um, not earthly wisdom, but spiritual wisdom. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not talking about spiritual wisdom as a category. He's talking about the source of true wisdom. And if if spiritual wisdom is, is true wisdom, where does it come from? From the Holy Spirit, right? He's saying, may you know the will of God as it is revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, as true knowledge and wisdom is revealed to you. And we often, like, we know the Holy Spirit's there, and, um, and we know that he has something to do with our lives, you know. Um, but of the three members of the Trinity, he tends to be the most mysterious to us, which is sadly ironic because he's the one who's supposed to be the closest to us. He's the one whom Jesus said, you're not going to have me with you any longer, but I'm going to send you the Spirit instead who will be with you. And Jesus says that the Spirit will teach us all things. He says um, that he will teach you all things and he will continue the ministry that I have begun. And so when we are asking ourselves and asking God, um, Lord, what is your will for my life? I think he would say, have you been spending time communing with the Holy Spirit? Where is your intimacy with the Holy Spirit? Have you been cultivating that? Have you been... Um, meditating on that. Uh, uh, True wisdom, true understanding comes from a deep intimacy and communion with the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 10, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Think about that for a second. If it was up to you, if God said it is up to you, to lead a life fully worthy of me. Okay, if that doesn't give us pause, we're not reading that carefully enough. Okay, because that should be a sobering thought. That should be a scary thought. Because it is impossible. It is impossible for us to lead a life that is worthy of the Lord. It is impossible for us to lead a life that is worthy of his his grace, of his sacrifice, of his long suffering, that is fully pleasing to him. Without the reality and the power of who Jesus is, there is no hope for that. And that is why Paul will return to that in the in latter verses. Um, and again, we're not going to get to this today. Next week, we're going to look at what Paul says about who Jesus is. And because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, because of his sufficiency, even the impossible becomes possible. So 
But Paul is saying, lead lives worthy of the Lord, but know that you can only do that through the Jesus that I'm about to reestablish for you. As you bear fruit in every good work, and as you grow in the knowledge of God, and so he's saying, uh, please God, um, by, by bearing fruit. And again, we have to stop and say that he's not saying that the good works are the pathway to righteousness. It'd be very easy for us to read that. And, and because he says, as you bear fruit in every good work, he's not saying you have to do the good works, okay? But again, that the good works are, um, they are fruit of what, what should already exist. The good works are not the means to righteousness, but the fruit of what should already exist. We can get caught up by a lie, and I hear this sometimes. So, so I remember one time I was, I was driving, you know, uh, and I was listening to one of the Christian radio stations. I forget which one it was. And uh, there's, there's way too many commercials right now on Christian radio. It drives me nuts. But uh, one of the DJs, they, they were interviewing or they were talking to, to someone who, who had called in, and she was like, you know, I just I love listening to your station because I feel like it helps me be a better Christian. And 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 I just I just I was driving. I was like, hmm, that that doesn't that just rubs me the wrong way. I'm, and at the time, I was just I wasn't sure what it was about that. But I would defy anyone to find in Scripture where where there are degrees of of being a Christian, where, where, where do we get this idea that, oh, I'm just not a good Christian, or I wish I could be like that person. They're such a good Christian. And in Scripture, there is no, like, good Christian, mediocre Christian, bad Christian. Like, you either are or, you're, or, or, or you aren't. You, you're in Christ or you're not. And somewhere along the line, we bought into this lie that if we try hard enough, if we work hard enough, if, we're just, if we just do enough, we can become a better Christian. Um, and that is one of the lies that will keep us from the grace of God, from the throne of God more than anything else. Because again, it returns the power to us, which is doomed to fail and diminishes our need, our ongoing need and dependence on the grace of God. And so we should not try to be better Christians. What we should do is try to know Jesus better. Okay? Any other work is of the flesh. But the better we know Jesus, the, the, the closer we draw to Jesus, the more everything else changes. Any, if, if, if we're trying to, to conjure up these works, if we're trying to bear fruit in our good works in our own strengths, we're going to be disappointed, we're going to be frustrated, we're going to fail. And so Paul says, as you grow in the knowledge of God. So again, the fruit of our good works is dependent on our growing in the knowledge of God. And that knowledge doesn't just mean head knowledge. It doesn't mean knowing things about God. It means cultivating intimacy with God. Over and over again in Scripture, when it talks about intimate knowledge, it uses that word know, right? And so again, Fruit is shown in our good works that springs from knowing Jesus more and more intimately. Anything else is frivolous and has no value. Verse 11, he says, May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. There's a lot of power in God. 
Paul says, may you be. So Paul wouldn't pray something that wasn't possible, right? I mean, how cruel would that be? I'm going to pray this over you, but God wouldn't do it. <laughs> you know, um, Paul says, I, I pray that you will be made strong with all the strengths that comes from God's glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. And so when he's talking about being strengthened with the strengths of God, he follows that up with saying, and also enduring everything uh, with joy and gratitude. And so the strength of God does not strengthen us to fight. God's strength is not for us to, to wield as a weapon or to try and, and, and enter combat with the world, okay? The strength of God in Paul's prayer anyway is to prepare us to endure everything. And so Paul's saying things are coming. He wouldn't say endure everything if he didn't believe that trials and hard times were coming. So the strength of God is there for us so that we would endure everything with patience while, so in, at the same time, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints. What is the inheritance of the saints? Uh, think, think specifically in Paul's time. What, what did it mean for your life to be a Christian? What is the inheritance of the saints? Well, um, for, for Paul, it meant earthly persecution, but eternal glory. The inheritance of the saints in this world is that in this life on earth, in this physical world, we are, going, we, we are going to suffer persecution, but we're also going to inherit eternal glory. And so Paul says, God's strength is there to, to, to strengthen you completely, to prepare you, to endure that, and not just endure it with your teeth gritted and with complaining, but to en- en- endure it and rejoice and give thanks that that's what we have been called to. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so uh, Paul ends his prayer with a reminder of what God has already done for them and for us in Christ. It is not future tense that he speaks. It is not dependent upon some other event to happen. He doesn't say God will rescue you or he will transfer you into his kingdom or if you do enough of this or say enough of that or eat these things or not those things, then you'll be transferred into the kingdom. No, he says God has already done this. God has already rescued you from the powers of darkness, from sin, from death, from corruption, from disease. You've already been rescued from these things. You've already been transferred into the kingdom. We sit here this morning, if indeed we have followed Christ into death, and if indeed we hope to follow him in resurrection, we sit here this morning already established as kingdom citizens. So Paul says that is where your identity is. That is where this strength of God that will give you the strength to endure all things is, is in the fact that you have already been made kingdom citizens. You've already been rescued from everything this life will throw at you. And so this is where we're going to close this morning. And if I could just issue one final challenge. Um, for us, you know, the beginning of a new year is, is a great time just to reestablish goals, right, or to... To, 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 to reaffirm truth in our lives, hopefully. And so I, 
I, I challenge all of us, and my, my, my prayer would be that, um, that we would tighten our grasp on that truth, that we would tighten our grasp on our kingdom citizenship this year, that as the world continues to shift, it continues to change, as we continue to, to see things in the news and, and, and read things on social media that, that frustrate us or anger us or discourage us, that we would only hold all the more, all the more tightly to what Jesus has already done for us and realize that we're not made for this world and realize that God hasn't called us to live worthy of the world around us. That'd be easy. (laughs) He's called us to live worthy of him. Impossible, but in Christ, all things are possible. Um, In the next section, next week, Paul is going to beautifully articulate the nature and, and, the, and the supremacy of Christ, I would encourage all of you to read ahead. This is one of those times where it's okay to read ahead. Um, and uh, and yeah, that whole section just deserves its own, its own service and sermon. Um, and after that, again, he will establish uh, who Jesus is and, and how that calls us and draws us and empowers us for holiness in our lives. Um, let's pray. Lord, we, um, we come to you again. Uh, Father, these are some, some, some grand ideas that, that are in your word. These are things that are too, too high and holy and beautiful and wonderful for us to, to grasp fully. Father, I, I, I pray that, that all of us, uh, that we would hold fast to your word. We would hold fast to the calling to love one another to the, to the sufficiency of your son. Father, I pray that nothing else would, would, um, would draw us away. Nothing else would, would tempt us. Nothing else would, would deceive us into believing that, that we need to add something to, to your son. Um, Lord, you've already done so much, and I pray that you would, you would continue to bring glory to yourself through our lives, um, that in all things you would bring your will to, to completion. And we thank you again in Christ's name. Amen.